Penton Lee Lewis. You might remember me from my last podcast, Time to Speak Your Mind. I started this podcast because I wanted to focus on what I really love, horror and true crime stories. I will bring you some juicy true crime story every Saturday and horror stories every Wednesday. I will cover true crime stories starting from the Madog murders all the way down to murder on the Middle Beach. Can't wait to start this goosebumps, chills down the spine journey with you. military base doesn't exist. Not officially. It's a rusted-out corpse of abandoned hardwire, a veritable graveyard of fallen soldiers and crumbling structures. Hidden 12 miles deep in the jungles of South America, there's no reason anybody should be here. None. So why did I find a woman half-dead on the ground? It's a question I want answered. She's sitting across from me. Her eyes are downcast, Her blouse is torn, and her copper cheeks are flecked with spots of red. I don't know if the blood belongs to her or somebody else, but I figure by the end of this, I'll have a pretty good idea. Tourist? I ask. She gives me a hard stare. It's quiet, unyielding. She's not certain who I am, and judging by the look in her eyes, she's running a series of probabilities. It's the black suit that does it. Always. People see the suit, they see the briefcase, and their imagination spins into overdrive. I try another question. Did you come alone? She shakes her head. Her mouth is a thin line, defiant and uneasy. The legs of her chair squeal as she rocks back and forth, giving motion to her anxiety. She's considering the possibility that this is her last day on earth, her last hour. If I'm being honest, it might be. How many were with you? Lots, she says quickly. They're still around. They know where I am, know where we are right now, and... I doubt that, her voice stumbles. If anybody was with you, then chances are they're already dead. Jobs like this, they're usually bloodbaths, massacres. They're not the sort of places you expect to find survivors, much less unarmed ones. She swallows. Who are you? A friend. Some friend. I don't know the first thing about you. Funny. I was about to say the same thing. I reach into my briefcase and pull out my clipboard, centering it on my lap. On it are questions. They're the sort of questions whose answers are typically written in blood. How about you and I get to know each other? If you think I'm going to just tell you who I am, I don't care who you are. I care about what you're doing here, miles deep in the jungle, sitting in a military base that doesn't exist. I press my pen to the clipboard. How about you fill me in? The woman's eyes narrow. Her slender hands ball into tight fists. If I had to guess, she's not used to feeling this vulnerable, this powerless. And if I leave? She says, standing up. What then? Are you going to cuff me to a pipe? I smile. Why bother? The corner of her mouth twitches. You're not going to leave? I tell her. You wouldn't dare. For a moment, my eyes dance with hers, and in their fire I see something, some buried ember of fear. It's unmistakable. You know better than I do what's out there, I say. So go ahead. Walk out that door if you think you're safer outside. I won't stop you. I wait for her to move, but she hesitates. They always hesitate. Maybe you're right, I say, 
Maybe I'm not a friend, but I'm the closest thing you'll find to one for miles. So if I were you, I'd quit worrying about me. I'd start worrying about what it is I'm doing here. Meaning? I waved my hand toward the broken window. Outside are rusted Humvees, a crumbling barracks. Outside is a road so overgrown that tiny trees are sprouting from cracks in the concrete, while clutches of moss do their best to hide old rifle rounds. It means that places like this aren't left to rot without a good reason. Soldiers are trained to fight. They aren't trained to flee into the jungle, leaving their equipment and assets behind. I gesture broadly. Look around. This base was evacuated in a hurry. And that begs the question, why? More importantly, why did I find you in the middle of it? Her eyes dart outside. Her pupils are dilated in a cocktail of adrenaline and anxiety. If I tell you, then you've got to tell me something first. Tell you what? Who are you? She says, voice trembling. I want to know what's really going on here. The truth. I've been lied to enough today. Have you? I study her. The truth of my work isn't something people want to hear about. Not really. They might think they do. They might think they're ready to open Pandora's box. To see the dark underbelly of reality. But it's rarely the case. Still, the woman strikes me as stubborn. If pulling back the veil can get her talking, then maybe it's worth the existential crisis. I slip a hand inside my jacket, pull out my badge, and toss it to her. She catches it, just barely. There you go, I say. Everything you need to know about me, right down to my height and birthday. She appraises the badge. Her eyes move across the laminate once, twice, then snap back up to me. This says you work for an organization called The Facility. I've never heard of it. That's the idea. We're a shadow contractor. The less people know about us, the easier it is to do our job. And what is that job? Anomalies, I tell her. We investigate events of supernatural origin. They're typically caused by entities, things you'd recognize as monsters or urban legends. My job is to hunt those things, capture them. She shakes her head. Why? That's a complicated question. The short answer is that it's necessary. The long answer is that you'll sleep better not knowing. I lean forward, flaring my jacket behind me, letting the woman get a glimpse of the pistol on my hip. Fact is, I came here tonight to investigate an event, but instead I found you. I'd like to know why that is. Her eyes drift to the window. She's wearing the expression of a woman who was praying her nightmare was all in her head, that whatever she saw today was the product of acute psychosis, a little bit of neurological sabotage and nothing else. Now she's considering that maybe there's something more here. Maybe she's not as crazy as she hoped she was. What's your name? I ask. She bites her lip. Her voice is quiet, almost a whisper. Maria. You look like you're having a hard time processing things, Maria. You don't know what I saw, she mutters. You have no idea. I hear that a lot. I pull out a pack of smokes, slip one between my lips. I light it up and the nicotine tastes sweeter than heroin. It ripples through my body like emotional morphine. And just like that, the next part gets a little easier. Between you and me, my father was killed by an entity, Maria. I watched him die, 
Her eyes meet mine. They're wide. This wasn't the emotional curveball she was expecting. And that's exactly what makes it effective. Always. Happened when I was seven, I tell her. I saw the whole thing from under my bed, cowering. A creature had him in its grip. Some tall man with two faces. He lifted him up to the ceiling and turned to me. Asked what my favorite nightmare was. And then he tore my father in two. Like paper mache. I blow out a plume of smoke and it hangs in the air between us. Then I take another long drag. The truth is, I hate this story. I hate it more than anything else in the entire world. It's a memory I've gone my entire life trying to forget. But in moments like these, it's the most valuable piece of history I own. Even now, it's working its black magic. I watch Maria's posture shift. Her shoulders fall slumping forward in horrified disbelief. She's doing the human thing and empathizing with me, sharing a piece of my pain. And that's exactly what I need her to do. Is that how this so-called facility found you? She asks. It is. Her eyes are staring a hole into the concrete floor. She looks distant, haunted. I'm so sorry, she says. I ash my cigarette. Don't be. It's ancient history. The point I'm trying to make is that when you've seen an entity kill somebody, it stays with you. You recognize the scars. And right now, I see those scars all over your face. She doesn't speak. She looks out the window, out across the military ruins to a rusty steel wheel rising from the dirt. It's bolted to a hatch that leads underground, one she's been stealing glances at for the better part of our conversation. That bunker... I say. I found you lying beside it, bleeding and barely conscious. Something happened down there, didn't it? A moment passes. Her eyes are narrowed in focus, like she's weighing her options, calculating outcomes. Eventually, she takes a breath and asks a question. You said that you hunted entities. Well, what about demons? What about them? Do they exist? I crack a grin. (laughs) Depends who you ask. Are you saying that you saw one down there? I'm not sure, she says at length. Maybe not a demon, but something like it. She stops. Her teeth dig into her lip. And then she says something that shocks even me. I think I saw the devil. Satan. Satan? I say, whistling. Now that'd be something. You think I'm nuts, she mutters, shaking her head. I knew you would. Everyone will. I don't think you're nuts. Not yet. I take one last drag on my cigarette, burn it to the filter, and flick it to the floor. The truth is, the facility's been tracking strange activity in the area. A lot of it. Entities are being drawn to this base, being pulled in from nearby regions like moths to a flame, only to vanish without a trace. I'm talking about heavy hitters, nightmare fuel. These aren't the sort of entities that we can destroy much less contain. So the fact that they're dropping off the face of the earth is starting to get concerning. I thumb to the broken window. This base is the Bermuda Triangle for boogeymen. I'm here to find out why. She shrinks in her seat. Jesus, do you think it has something to do with what I saw? Maybe, maybe not. I won't know until I get more details. And that means I need to know what you're doing here. Here? She says. 
glancing at the bunker. Get me out of here. I'll tell you whatever you want. Not possible. We do this before nightfall. There's no other way. What Maria doesn't realize is that this entity likely already has her scent. Sooner or later, it's going to return for her. When that happens, I need every advantage I can get. And that means understanding just what happened here. Hang on, she sputters. What happens at nightfall? Keep derailing my investigation and you'll find out. I scratch her name onto the clipboard. I start talking. We're losing daylight. She runs a frantic hand through her hair. Christ. All right, she says, voice cracking. Let me think for a second. It started a couple weeks ago, I think. A reader sent in a tip about this place. Slow down. A reader? Right. I'm a journalist. I work for an online paper, and we solicit tips for our stories. Usually scandals, corruption. It's mostly political stuff. But a couple weeks back, a man sent in something bizarre. That man have a name? John. Just John? Her voice breaks. Yes. I write it down. She continues. John said he'd been hearing screaming that his whole village had, coming from somewhere in the jungle nearby. Military was in the area. They were sending convoys through the village in the dead of night, with their headlights off to avoid drawing attention to themselves. Apparently, they were all driving up an old road, one that hadn't been used in decades. John knew the road. He knew it led to an old military base, one that used to conduct illegal experiments. I lean back. What kind of experiments? The human kind. Genetic stuff. DNA splicing, mutating, you name it. Seems weird John would know that. He used to work there, she explains. A long time ago, during the Cold War. I frown. The nearest village is 12 miles away. Nobody is hearing screaming at that distance. That's just it. They didn't hear screaming from the base. They heard it from the jungle. John said it sounded just like it used to when he worked there. Guttural, animalistic. He could tell that the people screaming had been experimented on and that they were being let loose in the jungle. Let loose? Yeah. I guess they'd send out test subjects, then release other experiments, more advanced ones, to hunt them down. What for? To test their capabilities? Partly, she says darkly, but mostly for food. I chew on the tip of my pen. Cannibal humans, genetic testing, a massive military cover-up. Sounds like Pulitzer Prize material. She folds her arm and gives me a scathing look. Is that sarcasm? Not at all. Give me John's age. Not sure, she says. Seventy, maybe? He was in good shape. Fit, but he looked rough. Rough? I just mean he looked like he'd been through the ringer. Had a hard life. His skin was leather, and he was missing half of his teeth. His hair was a tangled mess. I'm pretty sure I saw lice moving in his beard. She pauses. And his eyes... His eyes were unnerving. Describe them. Well, they were pale. Paler than the moon. And every so often they'd sort of pulse, almost bulge out of their sockets. I hate to say it, but he looked freaky. And John brought you here, to this base? She nods. And where's John now? He's... Maria's eyes drift to the bunker. He's dead. Down there. I follow her gaze and the steel hatch is turning crimson in the setting sun. 
my stomach twists. What I don't tell Maria is that entities are most active after nightfall. If I don't solve this mystery soon, then the answer is likely going to come find us, and I'm not sure I like our chances of survival. That hatch, I say. I'm guessing that's how you and John entered the bunker. Yes. Describe the interior. Maria takes a second. She furrows her eyebrows, as though thinking back. It was narrow, she says slowly, like a tall cylinder. I remember standing at the top of the hatch and looking down into a dark pit that stretched forever. John got on the ladder and told me to follow. He said it'd be a bit of a descent, but once we were down there, he was certain we'd find the evidence we'd need to blow the conspiracy wide open. What state was the bunker in? I asked. John implied operations had resumed, but did it appear that way? No, she says. Frankly, the condition was awful. It looked like the bunker had been abandoned since the Cold War. Moss crept up the walls and the ladder rattled with every step we took. The place was a death trap. Every time I put my foot down, I half expected the ladder to snap. Odd. One would think John would clue in after seeing the state of the bunker that it wasn't fit for operation. Then again, John strikes me as a man not altogether there. He might have been mentally ill, out of his mind. Based on Maria's description of him, the pale eyes, chilling demeanor, I can't help but wonder if John wasn't so much an employee of the program as he was a test subject. Maria continues. About 50 feet down the ladder, we started to see catwalks. Dozens of them. They extended off the ladder in every direction, leading to various entrances along the interior. She trails off, as if collecting her thoughts. When she speaks again, her voice is hoarse, quiet. The entrances were welded shut, all of them. It's like they were trying to keep something trapped inside, like they didn't want it getting out. All of the entrances? I ask. No, she says, tugging nervously at her sleeve. Not all of them. One was different. We found it at the bottom of the ladder, half submerged in rainwater. The flooding only came up to our knees, so we were able to wade through easily enough, but... Her fingers dance across her jeans. They pick at the fabric. But what? It was torn open. She breathes. The entrance, I mean. It was warped outward, like something had clawed its way out of the bunker, pulled it apart like a tin can. I'm talking about inches of steel here, enough to shrug off the shockwave of a nuclear warhead. I mean, what could do that? For the first time, I feel the ghost of fear creep through me. It's subtle, insidious. If what she's describing is true, then there are two, maybe three entities I'm aware of with that capability. All three are impossibly violent, vicious. Official policy is to avoid contact at all costs. If such avoidance isn't possible, then policy dictates the elimination of all witnesses to ensure the preservation of social order. I look to Maria. She's covered in bruises, blood, and judging by the way she's cradling her arm, probably has at least one fracture. She's already suffered a nightmare. I wonder if I'll have the courage to put her down if the time comes. The door, I say, hoping she doesn't hear my voice crack. John used to work there. He must have had thoughts on the damage. She snorts. 
He said it was explosive charges. He said the military probably breached the door to get inside when they restarted their science project. But I knew that couldn't be true. First of all, the door was warped outward, not inward. More than that, there wasn't a shred of explosive damage in the area. I'm assuming these were observations you shared. Of course. John didn't care, though. Just changed the subject. Asked me if I had any skeletons in my closet. Asked me if I'd ever hurt people or considered it and... What? Yeah, I know, she says, laughing in disbelief. Talk about a left turn into what the f***. I shrugged it off. I mean, I knew John had demons in his past. Maybe he was looking for a little absolution for me. It's not like he sounded threatening. He almost asked the questions casually, like he was hoping we could start a conversation. Forgive each other for our sins, sort of thing. He didn't press the subject. Maybe if he had, though, things would have been different. She sighs. Her eyes shift to the bunker, hazy with memories. He helped me squeeze through the damaged doorway, and we continued on. All the passages were flooded down there, utterly dark. We sloshed through countless corridors, our headlamps reflecting off the black water and making shadows against the walls. It creeped me out. It felt like we weren't alone down there, because I'd keep seeing movement out of the corner of my eye. Movement? I wonder if she really was just seeing things, or if there had been something down there, stalking them even then. Anything stand out as interesting in those corridors? In some sense, all of it was interesting, she says. The whole place was like a buried time capsule. In the rooms we passed, I saw ancient magazines and peeling posters. I saw little relics from the 70s or earlier, some floating in the water, others sitting on dusty tables and countertops, even keepsakes, little lockets, wedding rings. Even the desks were full of soggy documents, classified ones. Seemed strange, they just leave all that behind. She takes a deep breath. We passed through a series of maze-like corridors, then climbed a ladder that finally got us out of that flood water. It felt nice to be on dry ground again, but the new chamber, a shiver runs through her. It was narrow to the point of being claustrophobic, and all along its walls were streaks of dark paint. The air felt musty, rancid, but it wasn't until we turned that corner that... She stopped suddenly, her expression paling. Maria, I press. What happened when you turned the corner? A moment passes. When she speaks again, her voice is hoarse. Something crunched under my foot, she says. Bones. The passage was full of them. Skeletons were piled a foot high. It looked... It looked like they died scrambling over each other. Like they were trying to reach the ladder and escape something. That's when I realized the streaks along the walls weren't paint. They were blood. Old and brown. My heart thrums. Could this be evidence of John's so-called experiments? Did the bones appear to be mutated at all? Maria nods slowly. Yes, some more than others. One skull could have belonged to a man, but its jaw was elongated, like a horse's. A single, twisted horn curved out of its forehead. Another was... another was flat, square. It looked like somebody had rolled a person's head under a tractor. But it had dozens of eye sockets, 
multiple mouths. She brings a hand to her mouth and gags. She looks like she might be sick, and I can't blame her. I'm beginning to feel a little lightheaded myself, though for another reason. Outside, we're losing light. Night is approaching fast, and I'm worried it might be bringing something that I'm not ready to deal with. Something violent. Deadly. What was John's reaction to the bones? I ask, swallowing my dread. His reaction? She mutters. Jesus. Well, he picked one up. Another skull. This one looked like it could have belonged to a woman, maybe. But where the mouth should have been was something else entirely. Mandibles. Like a wasp. Or an ant. Whatever it was, it got John excited. His eyes did that creepy thing where they bulged from his sockets. And down there in the dark, I swear they even glowed. He held up the skull just inches from my face and asked me how it made me feel. I could hardly focus on his words. His breath smelled like rot, decay. He pressed me against the wall, but I shoved him off. He came back at me and I took a swing at him, caught him across the jaw because I wasn't taking any chances down there. That dazed him. He stumbled and spat out some blood. An altercation, a new, unexpected wrinkle to her story that isn't giving me any solutions to save our lives. Still, John is a curious individual. He was right about the experiments. If he's dead, then I wonder what role he played in all of this. How did John react to you hitting him? He got weird, she says, shaking her head. Like, bizarre. He started mumbling nonsense, then shouting that I was being cruel, evil, like these monsters all over the ground. He cried. He whimpered that he was hurt and that he brought me here as a favor, but now I was betraying him. Maria pauses, as if she's trying to make sense of her own story. It was so strange. The way he was shouting didn't sound angry, but almost performative. He kept calling me a monster, like he was trying to get somebody's attention. And did he? Her mouth falls open as if to say no, before a sudden realization flickers across her eyes. Yes! She breathes. Oh God! I didn't notice at the time, but yes, right after the shouting, we heard a clanging sound. It echoed through the passage. Whatever it was, it sounded distant, far off, like it was coming from the entrance to the bunker, from that long ladder. How did you react? I didn't know what to do. I mean, hell, I don't think I believed it was really happening. We were miles deep in a jungle, in a military base that by all accounts didn't exist. Who the hell could be coming down the ladder? And John's reaction. He grabbed my hand and swore. He said the military must have figured out we were there, that they were coming to capture us, or kill us, or turn us into one of their newest abominations. Who the f knows? He told me he knew a place where we could hide. We fled down passages that twisted and turned like a labyrinth. I followed his lead. At that point, I had no idea where we were, no idea how to find my way back. He was my lifeline, my only shot. But the entire time we ran, I heard something rumbling in the dark. Something human? Do humans howl? Goosebumps trace my skin. No, they certainly don't. Maria, I say. This is important. What did the howl sound like? A wolf or maybe a hyena? This could be my chance to identify this thing. To figure out what it is we're up against and save our lives. But she shakes her head. She shakes her head and I hate her for it. No, 
she tells me. It didn't sound like anything alive. It sounded artificial, electronic. It howled like a microphone screams with feedback, all high-pitched and ear-splitting. My grip tightens, cracking the plastic shell of my pen. Maria's description doesn't sound like any entity I'm familiar with, and that's making me frustrated and terrified. This place John mentioned, I say, swallowing. The place he said you'd be safe. Where was that? The color in her face washes away. A wide room, shaped like a pentagon. All along the wall were slots, gun turrets. They were abandoned, rusted out like everything else there. But it was the words written all across the walls that made my blood go cold. Her voice trails off. She tries to finish her thought, but it comes out as a sob. She drops her face into her hands, and the tears come out like a torrent, messy and loud. I give her a moment to let it out, to collect herself. But the truth is, I'm not sure it's a moment we can afford. Outside, the sun is missing. It's gone. The last scraps of daylight are making crooked shadows out of the tree line, spilling them across the base like decrepit fingers, reaching toward us like hungry phantoms. My eyes find my clipboard. I scan it. I review the details I've recorded in search of some clue, some revelation that might get us out of this alive. But my writing is a mess. It's uneven. It occurs to me that my hand has been shaking, that even now my palm is slick with sweat. I'm sorry. Maria sniffles, wiping her nose on her sleeve. I'm sorry. It's okay. It isn't. You said there were words on the wall. What did they say? Sector 5, she says, taking a shuddering breath. Sector 5, feeding trough. And the room. Oh, God, there were corpses everywhere. They were scorched, burned. They were half-devoured, rotting away with maggots pouring out of their skin. The scent was... Nothing in the world smelled more terrible, more revolting. Corpses, I say heart-pounding. Like the ones you saw before? Genetic experiments? You said something earlier. Something about missing monsters. Disappearing entities. I lean forward. What about it? Her eyes get wide. The contours of her face twist with the onset of dawning horror. I think I found them, she says, her voice barely a whisper. I think I found all of them down there. My jaw clenches. It's my turn to go pale with shock. Suddenly, the puzzle pieces begin to connect in my mind. They're building a picture that I'm not sure I want to see, but it's a picture that's becoming difficult to deny. Why? I press. What makes you so sure they weren't just test subjects like the others? These felt different, Maria says quickly. Horrible in a way that even the others couldn't compare to. It's like when you look at a mannequin or a doll. What's the phrase? Uncanny Valley. I offer. That's it, she says. That's what I felt looking at all these things. The uncanny valley. It was like they didn't have a soul. Like they never had a soul. Some looked human, nearly. But they were too tall. Or their limbs were too long. Or they had too many teeth in all the wrong places. But what scared me most of all wasn't the bodies. It was the thought that something had killed those things. Something had torn literal nightmares into pieces and there was a good chance it was coming to do the same thing to me and John. John, I say, 
still trying to parse his significance in her ordeal. That many bodies couldn't have appeared overnight. They'd been there for a long time. That means he probably knew about them, didn't he? She nods, gasping. He knew. You f***ing knew. He shoved me onto that pile of corpses, that festering and decaying pit of monsters, and told me as much. He started shouting. Call me a monster all over again. Evil, he said. Twisted. He kept pointing at me like all of this was my fault, and he hadn't led us to our deaths. Her voice became a stuttering mess. All the while, I heard the thing in the dark, approaching. I felt terrified, hopeless and numb. I kept asking John, why me? Why go through all this trouble just to kill me? And he told me that he didn't have a choice. He knelt next to me, put a hand on my cheek and whispered that his child needed to feed. It was getting hungry, desperate. He almost looked remorseful, if you can believe it. He told me that he was really sorry and that he hated to do this, but he stepped away from me and stood against the wall of the chamber. He watched. He waited. For a second, I'm afraid Maria is going to break into fresh sobs, but she pushes through. I didn't know what to do, she continues, wiping tears from her cheeks. I didn't have anywhere to run, anywhere to hide, so I just lay there in that heap of monsters. I gave up. The whole time, those footsteps get closer and closer. The nearer they came, the slower they got. It was like it knew I was trapped, like it did this before. It knew there wasn't a rush. She looks up at me. Do you think John did that to other people too? It's certainly possible. Did you get a good look at the creature? She shudders. Yes, I had my headlamp trained on the passageway the whole time. And when it appeared around the corner, I almost missed it. I heard it, but I could barely see it. It was a tall, flickering shadow. It pulsed, vibrated. The way it moved was jerky, haphazard, almost like it had one foot in our reality, like it was glitching with every step it took. Glitching, I mutter. Why does that sound familiar? That's right, she says. And that wasn't even the strangest thing about it. She gets small in her chair. It had these eyes, amber ones, bright and gleaming, like twin cinders smoldering in empty space. It felt like they were piercing me, like its eyes were digging through my skin and looking into my mind or my soul. It was like that thing was taking bites out of my memories, tasting them before spitting them back out. How did it feel? Painful? No, she says. It felt cold, like a blizzard in my head. Like all my thoughts had frozen to a crawl. Maybe that's why I calmed down. I don't know. I remember sitting there, totally numb as the shadow phased through the metal bars of the gate. It almost looked human. It had two arms, two legs, and a head. But its body was made of black static. Like television interference. Television interference? Where have I heard that description before? I rack my mind for a match some kind of urban legend or ancient lore that matches what she's saying, but nothing jumps out. I flip through the pages of my clipboard, stopping on one labeled Aberrant Events. It's the facility's own most wanted list. My eyes fly through the cases listed, but there isn't anything close to what she's describing. An idea strikes me. Did the shadow hurt you at all? She looks down at her arm. There's a large gash there framed by clots of dried blood. No, I don't think so. 
she says hesitantly. I got these injuries when I was trying to escape. No, of course it didn't. It had other food available already. And what happened after it pierced you with its eyes? I ask. It walked past me, she says. It walked through that mulch of corpses and headed straight for John. It started speaking along the way. At least, I think it did. What do you mean by speaking? Do you remember how I said it was howling before? I do. Well, this time it was hissing. Like a live wire or static electricity. Whatever it was communicating, John looked panicked. He was crying, pleading with it. He kept saying that he'd done his best, but there was nothing else out there. So the shadow would have to make do with me. But the shadow didn't seem to care. It grabbed John by his long hair, lifted him up to the ceiling, and its cinder-light eyes started gleaming an angry orange. My heartbeat races. My pen flies across the clipboard, desperately trying to avoid missing a single detail. Maria keeps talking. She keeps giving me more of what I need. John kicked and screamed, she says. He begged me to help him, told me that if I didn't, I was every bit the monster he said I was, and I'd be next. But before he could finish, the shadow's eyes flashed and leaped fire. John started shrieking and moaning as his face melted into his skull. Maria's face twists with revulsion, disgust. She looks away, back to the bunker. I wonder if she's hearing what I am. That dim rumble of something moving underground. That slow march of an approaching nightmare. Our clock is ticking. It's not something I can tell her though, because as soon as she starts panicking, I lose the chance to connect the dots I need. Maria, I say, pulling her attention back. Continue, it's critical I get these details. Sorry, it's not a memory I like thinking of, but the shadow held John there, his legs twitching weakly, and then he grabbed his head and tore it off his neck. She brings a hand to her mouth and starts nervously biting her nails. Then it lifted John's skull to its amber eyes. It opened its mouth and screamed fire. The heat I felt was like an open furnace, like hell itself. Tendrils of darkness emerged from the shadow, clutching at John's scorched skull, cracking it open like an egg. His brain spilled out. The shadow caught it in those tendrils and brought it into itself. His brain, like it was assimilating it or eating it. She looks up at me. And there's the same angry defiance I saw when we met. Now do you get it? She asks. Now do you see what I mean about this thing being the devil? What else could do something like that? It's a good question. I can think of one entity, only one. If my guess is correct, then Maria and I get to live to see tomorrow's sunrise. If it's wrong, then I need to put a bullet in both our heads before that thing finds us. All of it hinges on my next question. It killed John. Then what? What did the shadow do? It turned back to me, she says. It glared at me with those blazing eyes, and I thought I was next. I knew I was. But then I felt another blizzard sweep across my mind, and that was it. I blacked out. Hang on, I mutter. What do you mean you blacked out? I found you lying outside of the bunker. How did you escape? She shakes her head, frantic. I don't have a clue. I blacked out. Then the next thing I remember was waking up outside the bunker, with you pouring water on my face and telling me we needed to talk. That's it. She shoots up from her chair. Christ, we need to leave. I blink. Why? The police. I've got to tell him about John and what he was doing. 
I've got to tell them about this base. Maybe John brought others here. More victims. Maybe some of them are still alive down there and need help. We need search parties and... Don't bother, I say. She looks at me, stunned. The police won't have any record of John. Tell them where you were, what you saw in that bunker, and they'll probably kill you. I reach into my pocket, pull out my lighter and run a thumb down the spark wheel. It flickers to life. Fact is, John doesn't exist. Neither does this base. I bring the lighter to the edge of my clipboard. The flame catches a page. What the hell are you doing? Maria exclaims. Saving your life, I say, tossing the clipboard to the floor. It pops and cracks as the fire eats the woman's story, one word at a time. What the f***? You said you believed me. I still do, I tell her. That's the problem. An hour ago, I had no idea what was going on here. But the more you spoke, the more it started making sense. I realized that you and John were more right than wrong. That there really is a conspiracy here, a cover-up. Then the people deserve to know. They do, I confess. And they will, eventually. But not from you, and not from my report. Neither is an option. She shakes her head, incredulous. Then how? I walk to the window, rest my hands against the edge. I take a breath. It's humid, heavy with South American heat. I'll figure something out. I always do. There's a heartbeat of silence. Then she asks the obvious question. It's your employer, isn't it? This whole thing has something to do with the facility. Yes, I tell her. I think it does. She appears at my side. The two of us stare out across the dark of the base, out at the steel hatch rising from the dirt, where a devil made of flesh is inching ever closer. I thought you said your job was hunting monsters, she says at length, not creating them. My job is a lot of things. More than anything else, it's complicated. The facility is, well, it's not what I'd call a good organization, or even a moral one. Then what is it? I consider the question. A pragmatic answer to an otherwise ugly question. She looks at me expectantly. The question of salvation, I explain. The question of how do you rescue humanity from a nightmare so twisted that it defies all language? All concept of imagination? There's something coming for us, Maria. Something dark and unfathomable. And these entities, these monsters, might be our only chance of fighting back. She's quiet. Her expression is difficult to read. Decades ago, the facility was a very different organization, I tell her. In those days, they thought the approaching nightmare was right around the corner, and that we had weeks or months until it showed up on our doorstep. They didn't know. Out of fear, they greenlit any and every possible situation. Or at least, that's what the rumors say. Rumors? I nod darkly. There's no real records of the facility's activities during the Cold War. Most documents were destroyed. The few that remain are heavily redacted. I wasn't around then, obviously. But I picked up bits and pieces from old-timers I've worked with. They mentioned black projects, hidden programs. One project was particularly infamous, so much so that even now, half a century later, the facility hasn't entirely snuffed out its legend. What project? Project Judas, I say. If you believe the rumors, it was headed by a brilliant biochemist named Screech, Jonathan Screech. The aim of the program was to create the ultimate weapon, a monster 
that could assimilate targets into its being, absorbing their capabilities. Such a function would provide it with a near limitless power ceiling. The problem was, something hits my ears. Maria's hand finds my arm, squeezing it painfully. Do you hear that? She hisses. Steel rattles in the distance. There's a low groan of warping metal, like the rungs of a ladder slumping beneath the weight of something titanic. There's something beneath us. It's inside of that bunker, climbing that old ladder, and it's making its way to the surface. We've got to run! Maria tugs at my arm, but I keep my feet planted where they are. My eyes narrow. I stare at the now trembling steel wheel, lit up beneath the light of the jungle moon. Maria stumbles backward. A smile finds its way onto my face. In the distance, across the ruins of the base, the bunker's hatch is thrown open. A dark shape emerges. It buzzes like television static, framed in shafts of moonlight. Its twin eyes glow like cinders. The shadow lurches, looking around, scanning the base and emitting a low electric hum. That's it. Maria whimpers. Oh God, that's it. The creature sees us. It sees me. It takes a shambling step forward, and dust and dirt flies into the air beneath its weight. Its eyes smolder, growing and growing until they become a blaze of fire. Maria is on the ground. She's hiding beneath the windowsill, reefing on the fabric of my pants and pleading with me to run. But I hardly notice she's there. This shadow, this monster, is why I've come here tonight. Now, we finish things. A wave of arctic air passes through my mind. It's just as she described. My heart slams as I feel this shadow rifle through my thoughts, chewing on my memories. I close my eyes. I breathe deep, inviting it in. Go ahead, have your fill. And then with one final shiver, the cold in my skull fades. The shadow retreats. It pulls back from my mind, and when I open my eyes, I see it gazing back at me. The fire in its eyes dims to that cinder glow. It tilts its head skyward. Six black wings burst from its back in a shower of static. What's happening? Maria asks frantically, still on the ground beneath the window. How are you going to kill it? I'm not, I tell her. The shadow belts out one last distorted howl before launching itself into the air like a streak of night. Three flaps of its wings and it's gone. Vanished into the sky, lost amongst the clouds. Maria rises to her feet. Her eyes are wide. She's shaking. Her entire body is shaking with a tidal wave of horror. Oh no, she mutters, gazing at the sky. It's gone. So many are going to die. Yes, I tell her. I hope so. She turns to me, angry and stunned. You told me your job was stopping those things, hunting them. What's the deal? Why'd you just let it fly off? Because I never finished my story. You've got to be kidding me! Project Judas had a directive, I explain. A very specific one. Its purpose was to assimilate hostile entities, to annihilate monsters and boogeymen, and ensure the survival of our species. Simply put, it was never made to hurt humans. After everything you've told me, I'm not convinced it can. She crosses her arms, looking at me like I've lost my mind. Were you even listening to what I said? I found a graveyard down there. It burned John's skull to a crisp, cracked it open, and ate his brains. I don't care what it was designed for. I watched it kill a human right in front of me. I'm not certain you did. I lift up my briefcase, paying my now ashen clipboard one final farewell glance. 
From everything you described, I question whether John was a man at all by the time he took you down to that bunker. If he really was Jonathan Screech, and I think the evidence points to yes, then it's said he conducted more than a few experiments on himself along the way. The glowing eyes? I've never met a human with a set of those. But, fact is, John brought you here to kill you. John told you that he needed to feed you to his child, that he didn't have a choice. My thoughts to turn all the strange disappearances that led me here, the missing entities, the absentee urban legends. He was feeding Judas a steady supply of horrors, just enough to keep it from entering hibernation, right up until the moment he ran out. That's why he pulled you down there. He thought you'd be an easy mark, that maybe with a little creative twisting of the narrative, he could convince Judas that you were close enough to food. Remember how he kept calling you a monster? Unfortunately for John, he misunderstood his own creation. Project Judas wasn't designed to harm human beings. It went against its core directive. So in that moment, when John offered you as a sacrifice, a flip switched in Judas that made it realize John had crossed the threshold and become a monster himself. She's quiet as we walk out the door. Do you think he really was that Jonathan Screech guy? I shrug. Maybe. I doubt there are dental records to double check. But based on what you've said tonight, it wouldn't surprise me if Screech couldn't let his project die. A creature like Judas. The facility probably didn't have the means of terminating it, so they buried it instead. Sealed it behind blast doors a kilometer beneath the earth. Then they erased all records of this base ever existing. My SUV is gleaming black. Impossible to miss against the ruinous backdrop of ancient Humvees. I crack the passenger door. Need a ride? She smiles. It's the first time I've seen her smile all night. And I can't help but smile back. Thank you, she says, for not killing me. Don't mention it. She clambers into the seat. And just as I'm about to close the door, she stops me. Wait, she says quickly. I forgot earlier. But John mentioned another entrance, one used for freight. That's probably how he got back into the bunker after they sealed it up. He seemed to know everything about that place. Yeah, I tell her. I figure he must have. I close the door and circle to the driver's side. So what do we do now? She asks as I hop in. About that thing, Project Judas? Nothing, I say, plugging the key into the ignition and giving it a twist. The engine rumbles to life. As far as I'm concerned, that creature isn't a monster. And that means it's not my problem. The vehicle rattles as we pull out of the base and onto the jungle road. Maria twists in her seat. She looks back through the rear window as her worst memory falls further and further behind us. If it isn't a monster, then what is it? She asks. Words drift around my head. Definitions. I'm trying to figure out how to explain what it is that she and I saw. What it is that more people will see in the coming weeks. I'm trying to think of a way to tell Maria that whatever that thing was, she doesn't need to be afraid of it. None of us do. I open my mouth to reply, but I'm interrupted by a microphone howl. It's distant, far away. I crane my head and look up through the scatter of vines passing above us. And then I see it. A dark speck on the horizon. It's little more than a dot against the moon-streaked clouds. But I know that if it were closer, I'd see a creature with six wings. I'd see a shadow with cinder-light eyes. 
a body of black static. I'd see a guardian angel, one with plenty of work to do. Thanks for watching. Be sure to subscribe and smash that like button to get notified every time I upload a new video. You can also check out some more of my animated horror stories right here. Talk to nicely. There is something clawing at my back, and I feel it every night. I don't know what it is, but I have not slept in over 72 hours. It started on Saturday as a dull ache. I thought that I had hurt myself somehow. I don't remember taking a tumble, but I must have at some point. I even considered other factors, such as a rogue spring in my mattress. It would not be out of the realm of possibility, since I have had the same mattress since college. They're expensive to replace, you know? But I got up in the middle of the night, and I flipped it over hoping that would help. I threw my sheets down on top because I was too lazy to replace them, and I figured I would get to it in the morning. Well, morning came, and the pain was even worse. I could not get out of bed. It radiated down to my legs and made my knees quiver. Whenever I rolled onto my side, the pain sent another jab into my hips like the tip of a knife, plunging into the tender meat and grinding down to the bone. Again, I am not sure what I did to deserve this. It hurts like nothing I have ever felt. I ground my teeth and tried to force myself to sit up, but I could barely do that. Every time I tried to rise, it was like every vertebrae in my spine was being compressed and grinding against one another. I could almost hear the calcium squealing over the crackling cartilage, and then, of course, there was more pain. I fell back to my pillow with hot tears in my eyes. My hands shook as I did my best to curl inward enough to pull my limp legs back up onto the side of the bed. There was no one that I could call. I do not have family nearby or any friends who could make a quick trip to usher me to the hospital. I live a good 30 minutes outside of town and it's about 40 to the nearest hospital. For anyone, that's a hefty round trip. Not to mention my lack of insurance and the fact that there is no way to predict how long an ER trip could feasibly take. I thought about taking a hot bath to soothe my aches, but I knew that even if I could get down and crawl my way to the bathroom, I would probably not get back up again. The pain was so much that I could not even sleep it off. Eventually, I had to make myself crawl across the bed. Never in my life has the journey from one end of a full-size mattress to the other felt so long. I covered the distance in inches, creeping along like a marching ant over the long stem of a quivering leaf. With every tug, my back screamed, but I had no choice. My arms did the lion's share of the work getting me across, and when I finally reached the side that was closer to the door, I could have collapsed in exhaustion. Sweat broke out on my brow, streaming down the sides of my face as I pushed myself up into a seated position. I shredded every breath through my teeth. A glob of snot dangled from the cavity of my nose and smeared over my upper lip as the concentrated effort of staying upright expelled every fluid possible from my body. I was finally able to set my foot down on the other side, and it was like stepping on hot coals. I ground my teeth until my jaw hurt, and then I set the other foot down. Once both heels were on the ground, the pain was not quite as bad. 
It still pulsed like the heartbeat of a living creature inside the small of my back. It was as if something was nestled there, trying to pry its way free. I grabbed the dresser in front of me and finally managed to straighten, with more snot and sweat pouring from me like my whole head was a sponge being squeezed empty over a sink. My stomach roiled with nausea, but I finally stood up straight. I spent half a second swaying on my feet, one hand out to catch the dresser in case I went tumbling. As soon as I was upright, everything that I had been holding in for however many hours I had been bedridden went straight to my bladder. There was a new pain signal, although it was one that I recognized. I shuffled one foot in front of the other, heading for the bathroom with all other thoughts fleeting from my head. The world tipped a little. My vision was gray at the very edges, but I kept going. My legs kept screaming at me. My knees were hot and swollen and stiff, but I could not stop. I set eyes on the porcelain bowl, but I did not have a chance to even try and sit down. Everything came gushing out at once. Hot, dark piss that soaked through the front of my bed pants and trickled down my leg. When I looked in the mirror, I saw that it was the color of rust. New panic gripped my lungs and made it almost impossible to breathe. Am I bleeding? I shoved my pants down my hips and let them fall to the floor, dragging my boxers with them. The inside of my thighs were streaked with watery pink rivulets of shame and horror. I leaned over to grab some toilet paper, forgetting, in my panic, that I was nearly incapacitated. The pain stabbed me again in the side and I cried out, even though no one could hear me. The pitiful sound just ripped its way out of my throat and I crumbled. I think I hit my head on the toilet. It made a sound like a walnut being split. The world went from gray to black, and I don't know how long I was like that. When I woke up, there was more blood. It stuck to the side of my face and adhered my cheek and temple to the bathroom tile. A groan rattled its way up my throat as I peeled my head back. The congealed blood made a sucking sound like a feeding parasite being ripped away from my skin. I touched my cheek to brush off some of the flakes. I felt my head for the wound, but in the mass of matted curls, I could not find it. At that point, I wanted a shower more than ever, even though I knew for sure that a shower was impossible. I needed to call someone. I didn't even know what time it was. My phone was plugged into its charger on the other side of the bed, the one that I had crawled away from, thinking that I could accomplish something. I just wanted to be back in that old, worn spot underneath a pile of blankets. I did not care if I ever moved again. I just wanted some relief. Maybe the rogue spring would pierce through the padding, stab me in the pancreas, and kill me. That would have been preferable. I managed to roll over onto my back and then onto the side where I wasn't bleeding from my head. The textured water stains on the popcorn ceiling circled my vision and made me nauseous again. I found myself facing the bottom of the full-length mirror that stands across from my shower. I never liked that it was there, but I was not responsible for the design. I am not an architect. The sight of my own face startled me enough to yell. Even then, probably only 12 hours in, I looked like hell. 
There were dark circles under my eyes, and my lips were dry and torn apart from where I had been peeling back the skin with my teeth. There was blood on my teeth and on my chin, and white flakes of snot on my upper lip and pushed into the corners of my mouth. My nose looked red and dry, and all my blonde curls were the color of groundwater and absolutely caked with blood. The sight of myself laying on the floor, naked, covered in piss and slime, was enough to make my teeth start chattering. I swallowed hard and just laid there for a minute, staring at myself, wondering what I had done to deserve being in this much pain. And as I lay there, completely immobile while confronting my own mortality, the walls turned yellow and then red. The sun was setting outside of the little half-circle window above my shower, and soon the room would be cast into complete darkness. I had to get to my phone. I had to call for help. At this point, I needed an ambulance. I couldn't afford it, but that was a problem for later. I closed my eyes again. I was tired of looking at my own chattering teeth and dry, leaking mouth. When I opened them up again, my lids scraped like sandpaper and more tears eked out of the corners of my eyes. I sniffled and hawked, but nothing came up, and everything around me was completely black. I shifted. I tried to push myself up onto my elbow, but the pain was worse than before. I could not even raise a knee without waves of agony knocking into my ribs. My entire body was being consumed by the hurt. I cried out again. My body trembled violently and my feet spasmed. I tried to lay as still as I could, but I felt my own snot leaking down the back of my throat, and it made me cough. The cough racked my entire body, and the pain was so intense that I screamed. Something else caught my attention then. Something else was in the mirror. I thought that I had to be seeing things. It looked like a pair of purple eyes, as fine as laser points and as bright as black lights drifting through the endless, inky space that surrounded me. I spent a moment paralyzed, watching them drift up and down, bobbing back and forth, but never too far away from their original place. Those eyes looked up at me again, and for half a second, I expected them to blink out of existence. Like anything else you catch out of the corner of your eye, especially when you are delirious, I thought they might just slip away. They did not leave. They did not even blink. They stayed fixed in place, hovering for a moment longer before the darkness around them split apart again. This time, the eyes were joined by two wide rows of shiny, jagged white teeth. The teeth filled the negative space like a curved grin stretching from ear to ear, and the pain in my back shot up my spine like a thread of lightning, even though I had not moved. I cried out again, my back arched a little from this sudden shock, and that just made the original ache worse. A dozen half-formed words sprang to my mouth, and I fought to gulp them down, caught between addressing what was clearly a hallucination and staying as quiet as I could despite my involuntary whimpers and wails. It watched me, unblinking and still as I writhed on the floor. It waited until I had finished, and then the smile got a little wider. Something pricked the nape of my neck, like a needle or a knife. Even in the mirror, I could not see. The hard, 
mean pain dragged its way down until it rested against the small of my back. And there it stopped. The eyes and the teeth vanished all at once. Meanwhile, something warm trickled down my back, and my feet were getting colder than ice blocks. I could not crawl. I could not move. I could barely see myself in the mirror. But I did not dare close my eyes either. I did not want to be asleep if that thing came to visit me again. It could not have been a hallucination. It had to be something else. No creation of the mind could do something like that. Minutes turned into hours, and my eyes were drier than before. I felt like they were going to shrivel up and roll out of my head like sad little marbles. My head pounded with pain more intense than any migraine I had ever experienced. My throat was dry. My stomach hurt almost as much as my back. I could not remember the last time I had swallowed anything that wasn't my own fear. Dawn eventually came. A warm spread of gold that heated up the bathroom tile. At first, I was grateful for the heat. But then I began to sweat again. The morning brought new colors to my attention. Dark, purple pools of blood like blackberry syrup had formed underneath me. Some of it looked congealed, while some of the puddles were too deep to solidify. My skin was blue, webs of gray veins wrapping like a noose around my throat and crawling over my face and skull like rot. The horror that I felt so deeply was not even registering on my face. I could only keep staring at my own reflection, wasting away in pain. Urine and the copper smell of blood made a potent bouquet. It was all I could smell alongside waste, which, if I had shit myself at that point, I would not be surprised, but I had not felt it either. Sunset came again. It was dark red, the color of death. It filled the bathroom and I watched it sink lower and lower in the mirror's reflection. Every time I blinked, my eyes felt like they were going to pop out. Even that motion was coming slower and slower. I could not tell if the pain was getting better or if I had simply finally found some relief due to the fact that I had not moved. My neck and head still hurt, but when the darkness fell, at least I could no longer see my own mottled, distorted face. Darkness was there for a while, an unwelcome visitor making itself comfortable before the eyes returned. They hovered behind me again, too bright to look at directly and that evil smile followed. I don't really know how to describe it, except that it made me feel cold. It scratched at my back again. It felt like claws this time. There was a burning pain along the incision line that had been made the night before, and a finger as hard and cold as lead prodded it. My flesh parted with a wet, sucking sound, and the pain went in waves up and down my back. I wondered when I would become numb to it, when the all-consuming, constant agony would become so completely normal that it barely fazed me at all. Of course, there had been just enough relief that the pain felt fresh. I whimpered again. I could not have uttered a forsaken word if I tried. Another finger joined the first, and then a whole hand. It was as if my back was being ripped apart, and all I could do was lie there and endure it. My vision fuzzed. I hoped that I would pass out. 
I whimpered again, trying to push out more of a cry. But it all just came out weak and simpering in my dry, feeble throat. My tongue was beyond useless. It was like having a mouth full of cotton. And whenever I parted my lips, the only thing that came out was dirty brown fluid like runoff. It drained from the corner of my mouth like sewage being pumped out of a hole in the ground. The color coming out of my nose looked more like pus, yellow and infected. The purple light coming from the creature's eyes made it glow. My whole body jerked. I watched the teeth part with a tongue redder than a cherry and longer than a python slithered out. Something wet and flabby dropped onto its center and then got sucked back into the gaping mouth that had formed in the void. I could do nothing more than watch in fascination as it continued, its gnashing teeth salivating with all the juices I could not produce, splattered bloody drool onto my naked side. Long strips of my skin peeled up from around my shoulders and ribs before vanishing behind those teeth like knives. And the strange thing was, I could not feel that. I could see it, I could hear it, but the pain was buried. It could have been hours or minutes. Time was lost on the bathroom floor. At one point, I caught sight of what looked like dark, clawed fingers skittering over my ribs. They were gone in a flash. I whimpered again. The sound came up like a burp and puffed out my cheeks. It made my lower back ache, but it still did not exit my mouth. At this point, I do not think that I have blinked in over six hours. The sun is setting outside my window and I am waiting for the darkness. There are more colors this time. My purple face, mottled black in some places, while other spots are pale like spackle dotted across my temples and chin. I looked like a bruised, molding plum. My eyes are yellow and they've got brown spots buried in the corners. They are rimmed in red and look ready to fall out. I cannot move them up or down anymore, so I have a limited view of the rest of my body. I imagine it is all a similar color. I can still smell shit and piss and blood, even though I don't remember the last time I was able to take a deep breath. There is only watching and waiting. The blood underneath me has dried and I feel like I am glued down to the tile. Like if I tried to roll over, it would rip off my skin or what is left of it. There was a knock on my door earlier. I don't know who it was, and I tried to scream for help. Nothing came out, not even a moan. I didn't feel the sound, only my urgency and the desire to push sound up my throat. I could not even manage a sharp exhale. My chest would not expand. If my muscles were not so weak, I would have choked on my own desperation. It all comes sliding out. Every fluid, every strangled cry, every last bit of hope. It's all in a puddle under my face and head, thick like sludge. It piles up like drizzling molasses. Sometimes I think I am dead, but I cannot be dead because I can still feel pain. It radiates up and down my back, throbbing and deep, too deep to massage out, too deep for medication to touch. And when I see the creature again tonight, I know that I will feel it scratching again. Its claws will dig out more pieces of me, and there is nothing I can do to stop it. I wonder if its movements are calculated, 
or if it is simply a slow eater. I can only hope that it is not overly intelligent and that my suffering is just an unfortunate byproduct rather than a malicious infliction. All I want is for it to tug the wrong organ, the right organ, and rip it out through my back, take my spine with it, wrapped in a cluster of frayed, pulsing nerves. I really just want to sleep. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy these stories, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and check out some more of my episodes here. Dr. Nicely. Hurry up, get him inside. I'm trying. He's f***ing heavy. Why don't you help? Use your eyes. I'm holding this bitch up. Just hurry up before someone comes over here to take a piss or something. The voices filtered through the thick black cotton of unconsciousness, accompanied by the pain in my head where I'd been hit. Consciousness came slowly enough that I didn't open my eyes. I knew better in that moment than to signal my awareness of the situation. I felt my body being pulled by my legs, and I made sure to stay limp. From the location of each voice, I could tell that Brett was the one pulling me into the auto shop while Hester was standing aside, watching and urging. I felt the surface under my back change from dirt to smooth concrete. The sound of shuffling feet followed me inside. It was Hester and the half-conscious woman he was with. The door closed and there was a click. Lights came on, faintly filtering through my eyelids. Let's get him strung up, Hester said. Put him under that lift. Now that I was on smooth concrete, the going was easier. Brett pulled me along the floor and then dropped my legs. Then he kicked me in the ribs. It took all I could not to scream out. Once I heard Brett walk away, I let my head fall to the side. I opened my eyes and I nearly screamed at what I saw. There was a vehicle lift next to the one I was lying under. The lift was all the way up. Under normal circumstances, this would give enough room for the mechanic to stand under the vehicle and work on it. But there was no vehicle on the lift. There was a dead woman. She was naked, strung up with chains wrapped around the lift arms and worked around her chest. Her breasts had been cut off and her stomach sliced open. Her intestines snaked down to a plastic kiddie pool underneath her. Although I couldn't see into the pool from my angle on the floor, I knew it contained her blood and various organs. I thought about the possibility that they'd done something similar to my sister. And then I thought about what they would do to me if I didn't find a way out of here. But I had no idea what I would do. What I could do. There were two of them, and one of them had a gun. I had nothing. But I had to think of something, and quickly. I was still half asleep when I opened the door and stepped into the hallway. The door to my sister's room was open, which was not a good sign. Leaning against the door jam, I took a deep breath and listened. She was gone. She'd probably left soon after I passed out last night. Turning around, I moved back into my room at the back end of the trailer. It was cold inside. I didn't have enough money to pay for a propane tank refill, so there was no heat. But I didn't go back into my room for a sweater to pull over my t-shirt and ratty pajama bottoms. A bottle of whiskey with about two fingers left in the bottom sat on my nightstand. I swiped it up and took a long pull from it, coughing when I was done. Then I dug under my mattress and found Emma's phone. She'd given it over last night and apparently knew that sneaking into my room to get it would have awoken me. Patting down the hall, I stopped at my sister's room and looked at the door jam. 
The cheap wood was splintered and cracked from where she'd forced the lock from the inside. I wondered what she had used. Then I saw the ornate metal hand mirror my mom had given Emma before she died. It was a family heirloom, and the slim metal handle was now damaged. Honestly, I was kind of surprised Emma hadn't pawned it already. I certainly hadn't noticed it when I was cleaning out the room in preparation for her detox. I looked around the room briefly. There was a bucket to use as a bathroom. There was nothing in it. She hadn't been locked in the room long enough to use it. There were some dry snacks and several gallons of water, along with bottles of vitamins. The cheap flat-screen television was from my room, along with the DVD player and the stack of DVDs. We had no internet, not since Emma had stolen all the cash from my wallet a week ago. She disappeared for two days after that, surely getting high with the piece of she called a boyfriend. But I couldn't be too hard on my sister. After all, her heroin addiction was my fault, and you got right down to it. I'd been working on a small cattle farm down in the valley when I was thrown from a horse and shattered my right arm. This was back before the words opioid epidemic became a household phrase. I hadn't realized until later that we didn't really have doctors in my little Appalachian town. We had drug dealers who looked like doctors. So when I was prescribed OxyContin for the pain, I wasn't complaining. It helped, after all. It did what it was supposed to do, but it also got its claws deep into me. When Emma hurt her neck in a car accident, I just knew she was in chronic pain, and I offered her a couple of pills, and then a couple of more when she asked. That was all it took. We were both off to the races, speeding toward the bottom of society like we couldn't wait to live in squalor. Our thoughts from waking in the morning to going to bed at night were all about how we could score our next fix. Of course, I lost my job at the cattle farm, and with it, my insurance. No more OxyContin, unless I wanted to pay out of pocket. And why would I do that when I could get heroin for a fraction of the price? Emma and I fed on each other's addiction. We were a team, in it together. We would split up to hustle up money, then come back together when we had enough to score. That was our existence for four years until I finally decided I'd had enough. I went through a week of hell and then a month of a slightly milder hell. Drinking helped, and I promised myself I would quit drinking, but that proved a little harder to do, especially since Emma was still using. She had agreed to quit with me, but she didn't follow through. I begged her to stay when she decided to go out and score, but nothing I said could convince her. It was something she had to really want. There was no forcing anyone to get off heroin short of throwing them in jail, and I wouldn't wish that on my own sister. Taking another swig from the bottle, I moved out to the living room. There was really nothing of value left in the house. Even my cheap flat-screen TV wouldn't sell at the seediest pawn shop in town, given that one corner was cracked and the full picture didn't show up. Anyway, she'd left in the middle of the night. There had been no pawn shops open, and she knew it. I figured she'd gone to her boyfriend's house to beg some drugs off him, and if that was the case, she'd probably still be there. Bottle in hand, I grabbed my cigarettes and stepped out the creaky front door of the trailer. The morning was hemmed in with fog that hung around the limp tree branches like poison gas. I plopped down in a wet lawn chair and lit a cigarette, adding the smoke to the heavy mist. My stomach was twisting in knots from all the drinking I'd done the night before, and was still doing. 
I needed to eat something. I made a plan to get fast food on the way to find Emma. Then I forced my mind off the problems at hand and looked at my little slice of paradise. What little of it I could see in the fog anyway. The trailer sat on five acres of land, given to Emma and me by our parents on their passing. Our mother died first of cancer, and our father followed shortly after with a bullet to the head. Losing our mother had been hard enough, but when our father went out like he did, things got pretty dark. And that was another thing Oxycontin and heroin were good for. They didn't just help with the physical pain, they also helped with the emotional pain. It's a dangerous combination. Our father had been a year gone by the time I got hooked on Oxy, but losing a parent hurts for a hell of a lot longer than a year. I stamped out my cigarette in the mist, soggy ashtray and went back inside to change clothes. I needed to find Emma, if only to make sure she was still alive and hadn't overdosed. I banged on the door while still chewing the last of my second McDonald's sausage burrito. There was movement inside, the sound of a glass bottle falling over and rolling across the floor. I banged some more. I'm coming, goddammit, a voice said. A wiry black man named Rodney opened the door, bleary-eyed and grumpy. The f*** do you want, Rick? I shoved past him and stepped into the house, ignoring his objections. I was much bigger than him, and he knew not to mess with me. Brett was another story altogether. Where's Emma? I asked. She ain't here, man, Rodney said, following behind me. And keep it down. Brett's sleeping. You seen her? I asked, looking into the living room. A couple of Brett's regular hangers-on were passed out on the ratty couches and recliners. Drug paraphernalia and alcohol bottles littered the coffee table. Emma? I shouted. Shh, Rodney said. Shut up, man. Emma, are you here? I started up the stairs as I heard a door open. Brett walked up to the head of the stairs, pistol in his hand. He was wearing only underwear, revealing a body swollen by too much junk food, booze, and drug use. If you had the money to spend on them, the heroin munchies could get you fat in no time. He pointed the gun at me, his broad and cruel face puffy with sleep. Where's my sister? I asked, not slowing or stopping. Not here, he said. Now off before I shoot you. I'd learned a long time ago that Brett was one of those guys who fed on weakness, so I didn't show my discomfort at having a pistol pointed at my face. Granted, the whiskey in my bloodstream helped, but I was uncomfortable. There was no telling what this drugged up would do, and it was the first time in our combative relationship that he'd ever pointed a gun directly at me. That alone told me something was up. When I got to the top of the stairs and managed a closer look at his face, I stopped. There were scratch marks on his left temple and cheek. My sister do that? I asked. Get out of my f***ing house, he said. Where is she? I asked. What happened? Brett pressed his lips together, eyes going hard. I thought of some of the things he'd made my sister do for drugs. Stories she'd told me when she was at her lowest, when she really wanted to get clean. Unable to help myself, I slapped the gun out of the way with one hand and grabbed him by the neck with the other, slamming him back into the wall. I know my sister came here last night, I said, choking him, hardly able to control myself. I knew how close I was to losing my sister, and I couldn't bear the thought. Even if I knew logically it was my own fault for giving her the oxys to begin with, I had every reason to want to kill Brett. I'd never killed anyone in my life, 
had never even come close. But whiskey made me mean, and I had an awful feeling in my gut that something bad had happened to Emma. Tell me when you saw her. What happened? I let up on his neck, and Brett sucked in a breath. <gasps> she was acting like a he said. We got in a fight. I refused to give her any dope. And then what? I asked. And then nothing. She left. Where did she go? How the f*** do I know? He was lying. At least I thought he was. There was movement from below, and I looked down to see that several of the people from the living room were now standing next to Rodney at the bottom of the stairs. One guy with a shaved head had a switchblade out. Another guy appeared with a baseball bat. I yanked the gun out of Brett's hand, then stepped back, quickly transferring the weapon to my right hand. Don't move, I said, before going down the hall and glancing into each of the three bedrooms. I saw a couple of strung out women, but no Emma. I moved back to the stairs and stopped at the top of them. Brett hadn't moved. He was rubbing his neck. After glaring at him briefly, I took a step down. That was when he spoke. Your sister is nasty, he said, barely above a whisper. I never met a bigger s***. You should hear some of the things I made her do. I stepped over and whipped the barrel of the gun into his face, right where the scratches were. Only I did it hard, as hard as I could. The metal tore through the skin at his temple and continued down at an angle, smashing into his nose. He went down hard and immediately started screaming as blood poured out of the two separate gashes. The guys at the bottom of the stairs started up, but I pointed the gun at them. I didn't need to say anything. As I moved down the stairs, leading with the gun, Brett started screaming at me. You're dead! He shouted, voice cracking with pain and rage. You're dead, and so's your slut sister. I'm gonna cut your off and shut it in your goddamn mouth. I corralled all the others back into the living room and left the house backward through the front door. I didn't lower the weapon until I was in my truck and moving down the road. Once I could no longer see the house in my mirrors, I set the gun down on the bench seat beside me and gripped the wheel with both hands, knuckles going white. I punched the dash three times in quick succession as I yelled, cracking the sun-faded plastic. It was a stupid thing to do, maybe the stupidest. Brett was a proud man, and I knew I'd just made things worse for both myself and my sister. I didn't know if he would actually try to kill me, but I knew I'd crossed the line. There was no way he would let it go. No way. Now, finding Emma was even more important. I had to find her before he did. I quickly checked the other likely spots, of which there were few. The whole time, I was glancing over my shoulder, expecting to see Brett's car or Brett himself coming for me, but he didn't. Not yet. He was probably at the hospital, getting his face sewn up. After checking the spots, I made calls. No one admitted to seeing Emma the night before. Several hours of searching passed before I admitted to myself that I had to go to the one place I really didn't want to go. It was also the one place Emma promised me she would never go to score. It took me 30 minutes to drive out to the property, and I chain-smoked the whole way. The fog had lifted, but a dreary gray sky remained low over the land, diffusing the sun and making it seem like half night. Wet leaves of yellow, red, and brown sat clumped at the sides of the road, half-barren trees like rotting bone picked corpses everywhere I looked. 
The place had once been called Blackburn Industries, back when it was a fully functioning business. Now, everyone just called it The Burn. Julie and Paul Blackburn had been pillars of the community, operating several legitimate businesses on their 450-acre plot of land, which had been in the family for generations. After Paul Blackburn died in their automotive repair shop, when a lift jack failed, causing a car to fall on him, Julie gave the place over to their one and only son, Esther. After that, she moved to Arizona to be closer to her sister. Everyone but Julie Blackburn seemed to know what would happen once Hester took over, and he didn't disappoint. He ran the place into the ground and started selling off plots of land to fuel his party lifestyle. In the years Hester had been the owner of the property, increasingly strange stories filtered through town like blood seeping into the cracks of the earth. Everyone in town had heard about the raging parties Hester threw, many of them lasting days or sometimes even weeks. Nowadays, it was like one never-ending party on the burn. Even before he took over, everyone knew that Hester wasn't right in the head. I'd had several interactions with him over the years, and none of them had been good. Mostly, back in the days before he took over, I would spot him at the local bars. He was always getting into fights or getting tossed out of the bars. I heard he'd served several years in prison for attempted rape when he was 18. Although I was just a little kid when that happened and had no personal recollection of it, I figured it was true. He seemed like the type, which was why I made Emma promise not to ever go up there. And it wasn't just him I was worried about. He had long since developed an entourage of men and women almost as crazy as he was. Apparently, whenever they were gearing up for a party, they would drive the two hours to Pittsburgh and find as many cheap prostitutes as they could many of them struggling to stay off the streets and pay them in drugs. The way I heard it, if Hester liked them, he would let them stay at the property as kind of live-in sex slaves, doped to the gills 24-7. It didn't take a huge jump in logic to see that Emma was on the brink of that kind of life. So as I pulled up to the gate outside the burn, that bad feeling in my gut gave a hard twist. I hoped there was some other explanation that Emma hadn't gone there in her desperation to get right, as junkies called it. But that feeling in my gut told me otherwise. Leaving the truck running, I stepped out and approached the wrought iron gate. Beyond it, up the dirt driveway, I could see the two-story house and two large warehouses off to the side. There were vehicle parts littering the property, along with discarded barrels and random garbage. There was an electronic keypad to my left. I pressed the intercom button. Nothing happened for several moments, so I pressed it again. What? A man said through the speaker. I didn't recognize his voice. I'm looking for Emma Peterson, I said. My sister. Have you seen her? No. The man said. I waited for more, but that was it. Hello? I said. Nothing. I hit the button again. The same voice came back on. off! Swallowing my anger, I took a moment to compose my voice. I had to be smart about this. If you don't mind, I'd just like to come and look around for her. She may have come to party last night. I just want to get her and leave. Is your sister an adult? I hesitated. Listen, I just want to find... I'm sure she's a f***ing adult, because we don't let no kids in here. And if she's an adult, and if she's here, she's here through her own free will. Now, if you don't f*** off, I'll be forced to make you leave. My composure broke, and I rushed up to the gate, grabbing the metal bars, trying to pull them open. 
they wouldn't budge, but I kept trying, my anger getting the better of me. The crack of a gunshot froze me. I looked down, half expecting to see blood pouring out of a bullet hole in my chest, but I was unharmed. Looking up through the gate, I could see a man on the front steps of the house. He had the rifle pointing at the sky, but he brought it down and pointed it at me, lining his eye up behind the scope. I backed away from the gate and got into my truck, then reversed away from the property. As I went, I looked down at the pistol on the seat beside me. A seething anger sent hot blood coursing through me as I turned around and headed back to the trailer, hoping Emma would be there when I got back. She wasn't. I spent the afternoon calling anyone I thought might have seen Emma the previous night. Many of them I had already called that morning. None of them had any idea where Emma was. By the time the sun was down, I knew I had to get into the burn and look for her. This time, I didn't go to the front gate. I knew the area well, so I parked my truck on a little used dirt road near the back of the Blackburn property and climbed through the barbed wire fence. I walked through the woods and picked a spot to watch, waiting for the party to start. Around 8 o'clock, I watched as about 15 people made their way over from the house. Emma wasn't among them. Shortly after, they went into the warehouse. I heard music start up from inside. 15 people wasn't enough. I had to wait and hope that more people would show up so I could blend in with the crowd. I sat in the cold and dark for an hour before I saw three sets of headlights come up the road and stop briefly at the gate before continuing on. Two SUVs and a van pulled up in front of the house, out of my view. A few moments later, 19 people walked into the warehouse. Deciding now was the time, I moved down the hill into the back of the house. I wore my tan-colored ranch coat. The pistol I'd taken from Brett was inside the right front pocket. I got inside the house without issue because the back door was unlocked. The place was a pigsty. Fast food garbage, beer cans, and pizza boxes were everywhere. Dishes were piled up all around the sink. Rolling papers and meth pipes and syringes sat on every available table. I searched the place and found no one but a passed out woman. I had to check to make sure she was breathing before moving on. No sign of Emma. I went out the same way I'd come and headed toward the warehouse. As I moved toward the door, I saw another vehicle coming up the driveway. Hanging back, I waited until the people, six of them, exited the SUV and headed toward the warehouse, carrying bottles of booze and cases of beer. I didn't recognize any of them, so I thought it was safe to join them as they went inside. None of them even acknowledged me beyond a casual glance. I walked into thudding bass, swirling colored lights, and the excited voices of the partygoers. Aside from the lights, it was fairly dark in the warehouse, which had housed a hydroponic produce operation back before Hester had taken over. My parents had often bought fresh veggies at the local farmer's market from Mrs. Blackburn. But all that equipment was gone now, likely sold off by Hester, leaving a large dance floor in the middle. There was a stage at one side, two stripper poles jutting out of it. Nearby sat a kiddie pool that I figured was often used for female bikini wrestling or some other such nonsense. There were a couple of kegs and ice baths and some tables and chairs around the sides. I peered around the room, seeing no sign of Emma, but I spotted Hester Blackburn pretty quickly. He was on the opposite side of the space, sitting in a recliner with a wobbly woman in his lap. She could barely keep her eyes open 
as the gaunt-looking middle-aged man groped at her breasts with one hand through her black spaghetti-strap shirt. Imagining my sister in her place, I had to quell an eruption of anger. It would do no good to go over there and assault him in front of everyone. I was here to find Emma, not to right all the wrongs that surely happened in this hell on earth. Moving among the people, I grabbed a red plastic cup and poured myself a beer, chatting occasionally with others to blend in. I didn't use my real name though, and I stayed away from Hester, afraid he would recognize me, but I kept my eye on him. The door to the warehouse opened. I glanced over, hoping to see Emma walk in, but instead, I saw Brett walk in, his face bandaged and bruised. I ducked down behind a couple of drunk homeless women, pretending I had to tie my shoe. From my kneel, I watched as Brett went over to Hester and whispered in the man's ear. The two conversed for the better part of two minutes before Brett stood again and moved into the crowd. Hester said something to the woman still in his lap. When she didn't respond fast enough, he shoved her off onto the hard floor, stood up, and slapped her. No one seemed to notice. If they did, they didn't seem to care. He yanked the woman up by her arms and the two of them walked toward another door at the back of the warehouse. Looking around, I could no longer see Brett. I stood up and walked across the warehouse, coming to the door Hester and the woman had just used. I stepped outside into the night, hearing talking from around the corner. I peered around, seeing that he and the woman were at the other warehouse, a garage which was used when the vehicle repair business had been in operation. Hester let loose a stream of curses at the woman, who was swaying on her feet, as he unlocked the door with two different keys for two different deadbolts. As he opened the door, I reached into my pocket for the pistol, knowing this was my chance. But before I could even get the gun out of my pocket, I heard a noise behind me. Something struck the side of my head. My legs turned to rubber and I tumbled down, vision blurring. The f***, Hester said, turning toward us. I told you he'd come here, Brett said from behind me. Well, Hester said. Bring him here. We'll do them all at the same time. I tried to pull the gun out, but it seemed to be snagged in the pocket. Then Brett hit me again. Hurry up. Get him inside. I'm trying. He's heavy. Why don't you help? Use your eyes. I'm holding this up. Just hurry up before someone comes over here to take a piss or something. The voices filtered through the thick black cotton of unconsciousness accompanied by the pain in my head where Brett had hit me. Consciousness came slowly enough that I didn't open my eyes. I knew better in that moment than to signal my awareness of the situation. I felt my body being pulled by my legs and I made sure to stay limp. I felt the surface under my back change from dirt to smooth concrete. The sound of shuffling feet followed me inside. Esther and the half-conscious woman. Knowing I had to wait for the right moment, I continued pretending to be unconscious. With two of them, I knew I wouldn't have much of a chance, especially since I knew one of them had the gun I'd taken from Brett earlier. I no longer felt its weight in my front right jacket pocket. The door closed and there was a click. Lights came on, faintly filtering through my eyelids. Let's get him strung up, Hester said. Put him under that lift. Now that I was on smooth concrete, the going was easier. Brett pulled me along the floor and then dropped my legs. Then he kicked me in the ribs. It took everything I had to not scream out. But if quitting dope had taught me one thing, it was to embrace the pain and discomfort. So I made no sound and no movement, not until I heard Brett walk away. I let my head fall to the side, away from the two men. 
and then opened my eyes. I nearly screamed at what I saw. <gasps> there was a vehicle lift next to the one I was lying under. The lift was all the way up. Under normal circumstances, this would give enough room for the mechanic to stand under the vehicle and work on it. But of course, there was no vehicle on the lift. There was a dead woman. She was naked, strung up with chains wrapped around the lift arms and worked around her chest. Her breasts had been cut off and her stomach sliced open. Her intestines snaked down to a plastic kiddie pool underneath her. Although I couldn't see into the pool from my angle on the floor, I knew it contained her blood and various body parts. I could tell it wasn't Emma. This woman had dirty blonde hair, not auburn hair, but it was little solace in the face of such disturbing cruelty. Just stand up, Hester said. Forget about her, Brett said. Help me get Rick up. He could come around any moment. Just stand up, I could no longer stand it. They sounded far enough away that I had to risk it. I had to turn my head. Both Hester and Brett stood near a workbench near the door we'd come through. Hester was trying to get the half-conscious woman to stand on her own, but it wasn't working out. And he was getting madder with each passing second. Come on! He said, slapping her face. I know you can hear me, you Their backs were to me. I moved slowly, sitting up while keeping my eyes fixed on them, hoping they wouldn't turn around. Stand up! Come on, Hess. Just let her fall if she's gonna fall. I know she can hear me, Hester said, reaching for a screwdriver on a pegboard above the workbench. He placed the tip of the screwdriver under her right eye. Open your eyes, I got into a crouch, glancing around for anything to use as a weapon. There was nothing close. Everything was on the workbench at the wall. I could see the pistol in the small of Brett's back, shoved into his waistband. Open your eyes! The woman's eyelids fluttered open and seemed to focus on Hester. That's good, he said, just before jamming the screwdriver into the woman's eye socket. She screamed, arms flailing as Hester shoved the tool deeper into her skull. The noise from her lungs was no match for the thumping bass and discordant treble from next door. Her scream faded, and her arms went limp as she twitched, her other eye rolling up into her head. God damn, Brett said, voice giddy with excitement. Even from behind, I could see that he was pawing at his crotch. Let me have her while she's still warm, he said. I had been frozen in terror during this whole interaction, still crouching. I wanted to scream and vomit all at once, but the next words Hester spoke brought me back to myself. No, we need to get Rick secured first. As he said this, he threw a casual glance over his shoulder. Our eyes met. I like to think that my eyes were full of hate and determination, just like his, but I don't think they were. The only thing in my eyes was fear. Brett! Hester screamed, finally dropping the poor woman to the ground while keeping hold of the screwdriver. As Brett turned to look, I jumped from my crouch, lunging forward the two men as fast and hard as I could. Brett got the gun out of his back waistband just a moment before I reached him. I grabbed the gun with both hands as I crashed into him, pointing the weapon toward the ceiling. He smashed back first into the workbench as we fought for the gun. I lost Hester from my peripheral vision only to realize where he was as he plunged the screwdriver into my lower back. Shouting, I jerked an elbow back, hitting nothing but air. Hester was too quick. He pulled the tool out and jammed it into a different spot in my lower back. The pain was too much. I was struggling to keep Brett from pointing the gun at me, and I didn't have much more left in the tank. Hester wrapped an arm around my neck from behind, his other hand jostling the screwdriver still inside me. 
I felt his breath on my ear as he got close. How's that feel? He said. That's what I'm gonna do to your sister as soon as I'm done with you. The gun was coming down. Brett was still fighting for it, rage all over his face. I let it come. But there's one difference, Hester said. Brett and I are gonna f*** the wounds while she's still alive. (laughs) He laughed in my ear, breath smelling of beer and cigarettes. I wanted to collapse, but I didn't. I let the gun come down until it was pointing at the space in the hollow of my shoulder, between chest and arm. you, I said, and I pushed Brett's trigger finger down. The gun fired, the bullet blasting through my shoulder and into Hester. He fell back, grunting in pain. With a little bit of strength I had left, I shoved the gun back out of the way with one hand and reached around my back with the other, pulling the screwdriver out. I jammed the tool into Brett's neck. It went in the right side of his throat and poked out the left. His eyes went wide in his damaged face. He let go of the gun and stumbled away, tripping over the woman's body as he panicked, trying and failing to keep the blood in his body with his hands. I tried to hang onto the gun with my left hand, but that arm didn't want to work anymore. I let it clatter to the floor. The pain was coming on now, and I knew I would pass out soon. I turned around to see Hester scrambling along the ground, a bullet hole in his upper chest, but it didn't look like much more than a flesh wound. By the time the bullet had gone through me, it had lost most of its stopping power, but it had done enough. I kicked him in the head once, and he stopped squirming so much, which allowed me to straddle him. I put the tip of the screwdriver just under his eye. Where's my sister? I asked, pushing the tip just enough so that if he moved, it would do some serious damage. In the back office, he said, voice high. She's alive, okay? She's alive. That's good, I said, and jammed the screwdriver into his eye as far as it would go. I found Emma in the back office, locked in a metal cage meant for dogs. She was alive, although she'd taken a beating. Soon after I retrieved the keys for the lock from Hester's pocket, I collapsed. I don't remember much of anything after that. I woke up in the hospital, Emma at my side. It was two days later. How are you feeling? I asked her. Me? I feel like she said. But it's nothing compared to how I'm sure you feel. You haven't dosed? Emma shook her head and smiled. But you have. You're doped to the gills. I smiled back. It was true. I've quit once, I said. I can do it again. But I'm gonna need your help. Emma reached out and took my hand. You got it. Thanks for watching. Be sure to subscribe and smash that like button to get notified every time I upload a new video. You can also check out some more of my animated horror stories right here. Hey! Hey.